Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. One of the most life-changing classes I've ever taken was a class at Stanford taught by Anne Firth Murray called International Women's Health and Human Rights. And I've talked about this class before, and I'll probably keep talking about it on future episodes. This was a really life-changing class, and it examined the lives of women from birth to childhood to adulthood to old age, and especially focused on women in the developing world. And I've wished so many times that every human being could take a class like that. It was so important in my education and as a citizen of this world. So I was really excited when my friend Becca Archibald, who did our episode on Sarah Grimke's letters on the equality of the sexes, she's a great friend of mine, and she gave me a book for Christmas last year that's called The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. And I kind of flipped through the book and discovered that this book covered so many of the same topics that we covered in that class. And with really clear and precise language And so as I picked the book up to actually read it a few months later, I was just blown away. Just so many gripping stories from the author. The author is Melinda French Gates, and she's done humanitarian work all over the globe. So I, as soon as I read the book, I immediately added it to our reading list for the podcast. And as I was thinking about who would be just the best reading partner for this book and to participate on the podcast, I thought of my friend Sarah Abbasi, who was in the class with me at Stanford. And I was so, so excited when Sarah agreed to be my reading partner. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Sarah. It will become apparent immediately as as listeners listen to the episode, what a just a treasure of wisdom and experience that you have on these topics. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to participate in this podcast. It's something when you first told me about it, I was so excited to do it. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Oh, great. Okay, the last step before we start the book is just briefly introducing the author. And I'll go ahead and do that. So Melinda Ann French was born on August 15th, 1964 in Dallas, Texas. She is the second of four children, and her father was an aerospace engineer, and her mom was a homemaker. She is Catholic, and she attended Catholic school as she was growing up, where she was the top student in her class. At age 14, Melinda French was introduced to the Apple II computer by her father, and then a school teacher who advocated teaching computer science to the girls introduced computer science at her all-girls Catholic school. And so it was from those experiences that she developed her interest in computer games and in the basic programming language. Melinda French graduated as valedictorian of her high school, and then she earned a bachelor's degree in computer science and economics from Duke University in 1986 and an MBA from Duke's Fuqua School of Business in 1987. And her first job was tutoring children in mathematics and computer programming. And then she became a marketing manager with Microsoft. And at Microsoft, she was responsible for the development of multimedia products. Melinda famously began dating Microsoft CEO Bill Gates in 1987 after meeting him at a trade fair in New York. And then they married in 1994. And they have three children, Jennifer, Rory, and Phoebe Gates. And I enjoyed hearing stories about their family. I loved it when she would kind of talk about the kids and 
marriage. And of course, we know that they just were divorced. The book was published right before they got divorced. So there was, I don't know about you, Sarah, but it was kind of poignant to read about the marriage parts, knowing that sadness was happening that <laughs> wasn't reflected in the book. But back to Melinda's story. In, two, in the year 2000, Bill and Melinda Gates launched the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which was reported as of 2020 to hold $49.8 billion in assets. And as co-chair of the foundation, Melinda sets the direction and priorities of the world's largest philanthropy. Just a couple of the multitude of amazing things that the foundation has accomplished. The foundation has donated billions of dollars to help sufferers of AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. It's protected millions of children from death at the hands of preventable diseases. And the foundation assisted in the eradication of polio. And the foundation's vaccination drives were responsible for helping to reduce deaths from measles in Africa. And because of that work, measles-related deaths have dropped by 90% since the year 2000. Melinda French Gates is also the founder of Pivotal Ventures, which is an investment and incubation company working to drive social progress for women and families in the United States. And as I just mentioned, Melinda and Bill Gates divorced in the summer of 2021, but she still goes by Melinda French Gates. So that's how we'll refer to her as we go through and share the passages of this book. So the first point that stood out to me was at the, um, it's in the introduction, the introductory chapter, and it's where Melinda Gates describes the meaning of a feminist. Uh, she writes, being a feminist means believing that every woman should be able to use her voice and pursue her potential, and that women and men should all work together to take down the barriers and end the biases that still hold women back. And I, I love that definition. I completely agree with it about in, in, in terms of just what men and women can do to break down the barriers that hold other women back. Okay. Well, I uh, wanted to share one very quick story from chapter one. And this is, so, so throughout the book, Melinda Gates shares a lot of uh, just stories that she has like on the ground with people all around the world. And this is a story from a country in Africa. And I didn't note which country it was, but this was somewhere on the African continent. I'm sorry, I didn't note which country it was. But she said that she was riding in a car kind of right upon arriving in this country and hadn't spent time in this country yet before. And she says, quote, I remember driving outside one of the towns and seeing a mother who was carrying a baby in her belly, another baby on her back, and a pile of sticks on her head. She had clearly been walking a long distance with no shoes, while the men I saw were wearing flip-flops and smoking cigarettes with no sticks on their heads or kids at their sides. As we drove on, I saw more women carrying heavy burdens and I wanted to understand more about their lives. End quote. One thing I want to that came to my mind, I guess, as I read this this part is, I mean, it's just it would be very upsetting to see that, right? To see a woman burdened with multiple children and a and a huge burden on her head, wearing no shoes, in the company of men who weren't even offering to help her carry any of that stuff, and they had shoes and she didn't. I'd be really upset. And 
I think she was, and that's why she wrote about it. But one thing that came to mind is that I've heard from several people, they'll, they'll mention this kind of real sexist, terrible aspects of this or that culture. And then they'll reference kind of benevolently patriarchal Christian traditions as being kind of the antidote to that or the solution to the problem. Okay. So for my, the, another moment that in the book that stood out for me was, um, I think it's in chapter two, when Melinda Gates shares a story of a midwife named Ati Pujiatsuti, I think. Uh, Melinda met Ati during her trip to Indonesia. She describes Ati as a 19-year-old trained midwife working in a remote village uh, in Indonesia. And um, in her story uh, that, that Melinda describes, she says, many of the villagers were distrustful of Ati. Melinda writes, when she arrived in the village, she wasn't welcome. People were hostile and distrustful of outsiders, especially young women with ideas of how to make things better. Somehow this young woman had the wisdom of a village elder. She went door to door to introduce herself to everyone. She showed up at every community event. She bought the local newspaper and read it aloud to anyone who could read. When the village got electricity, she scraped up the money to buy a tiny TV and invited everyone to come and watch with her, uh, end quote. Melinda goes on to describe how Ati slowly began to earn the trust of the villagers and to work in their village as a midwife, as a successful midwife and, and was there for quite a long time. And I think that earning the trust of people, first of all, I think Ati is remarkable that at that young of an age to realize, you know, you, you're coming from a completely different coming from the city and even recognizing that the people in a village would have a different mindset and attitude towards people from the city, which I don't think we appreciate that as much here in the States um, as, as we should, and we're maybe not as aware of it. So for this young woman, Ati, to recognize that, and as opposed to coming in, you know, guns blazing, say, here's how we're going to do things, being really respectful of the local culture, being respectful of the local customs and traditions and getting to know the people and earning their trust, I think that is the way, and that's something Melinda talks about over and over again, that is the way, once you've earned the trust of the people you are trying to help, whose lives you want to impact in a positive way, that's the way to go about doing it. And then it becomes sustainable. So um, in this same kind of section where she's talking about Ati in this, this village in India, she talks about the local practices of breastfeeding. And she says, quote, historically, the mothers in the community would go to the Brahmin, a member of the priestly caste. And I have to throw in this means a man, like a, a male <laughs> member of the priestly caste, right? And, and so resuming the quote, and ask the Brahmin when to start breastfeeding. And he would say, you can't let milk down for three days. So you should start after three days. False information is disempowering. Mothers would heed the advice of the Brahmin, and for the first three days of the newborn's life, they would give the baby water, which was often polluted. Wishwajit and Ati's team had prepared for this moment. They gently questioned traditional practices by pointing to patterns in nature that were part of the villagers' way of life. 
So then Gates goes on to say, quote, it's a delicate thing to initiate change in a traditional culture. It has to be done with the utmost care and respect. If love were enough to save a life, no mother would ever bury her baby. We need the science as well. But the way you deliver the science is just as important as the science itself. End quote. Okay, so the next chapter that I wanted to highlight is chapter three. And this is a chapter where Melinda Gates talks about the importance of contraception. And she really, she talks about this several times in the book. And it's one of the big initiatives that she's taken up in her philanthropy. So she says this, quote, I visited Niger, a patriarchal society with one of the highest poverty rates in the world and extremely low use of contraceptives, an average of more than seven children per woman, marriage laws that allow men to take several wives, and inheritance laws that give half as much to daughters as to sons, and nothing to widows who don't have children. Niger was, according to Save the Children, the worst place in the world to be a mother. I went there to listen to the women and to meet those mothers. So then she talks about how she's talking with a 42-year-old mother named Adisa. And Melinda says, quote, Adisa had been married off at age 14, gave birth to 10 children, and lost four. After her 10th pregnancy, she visited the family planning center to get an IUD and has not been pregnant since. That's caused her husband and sister-in-law to look on her with suspicion and ask why she hasn't delivered recently. I'm tired, she told them. When I asked Adisa why she decided to get an IUD, she sat and thought for a moment. When I had two kids, I could eat, she said. Now I cannot. She receives from her husband the equivalent of a little over a dollar a day to take care of the entire family. She continues to say, Across cultures, the opposition to contraceptives shares an underlying hostility to women. The judge who convicted Margaret Sanger said that women did not have the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting conception. That judge who sentenced Sanger to 30 days in a workhouse was expressing the widespread view that a woman's sexual activity was immoral if it was separated from her function of bearing children. And she goes on to talk about um, the Comstock laws, which we talked about in our episode on Margaret Sanger's speeches. But Melinda Gates goes on to say the common thread in all these times and all these places is, she says, the decision to outlaw contraceptives was made for women by men. So another passage that stood out for me is in her fourth chapter, where she talks about the um, transformative power of education. She writes, the most transforming force of education for women and girls is changing the self-image of the girl who goes to school. That's where the lift is. If her self-image doesn't change, then going to school will not change the culture because she will be using her skills to serve the social norms that keep her down. That is the secret of an empowering education. A girl learns that she is not who she's been told she is, She is the equal of anyone, and she has the rights she needs to assert and defend, end quote. So I think Melinda is absolutely right. There's a huge empowering, a a sense of empowerment that education brings. 
even if you are a girl, whether it's a Melinda Gates who's who's attended you know some of the best schools and universities and working at some of the best companies in the world, or a community school in a village um, in Pakistan. So education absolutely is transformative. Hmm. Well, I had actually I had a question again from the same chapter, Sarah, and. And you kind you answered a lot of it, but maybe I'll still ask it. I'm going to read a little passage and then see what you think about this. Um, she talks about the rates of girls' education at, uh, compared to boys, and she says, "In Guinea, just one in four girls is enrolled in secondary school, while almost forty percent of boys are. In Chad, fewer than a third of girls are enrolled in secondary school." but more than two out of three boys are. In Afghanistan, too, just over a third of girls are enrolled in secondary school compared to nearly 70% of boys. And of course, this book was written before the Taliban took back over. So we'll see what happens now in the future. But um, she continues and says, socially, women and girls don't need an education to play the roles that traditional societies have prepared for them. In fact, women getting an education threatens traditional roles. The extremists are saying to women, you don't have to go to school to be who we want you to be. So they burn down schools and kidnap girls, hoping that families will keep their girls home out of fear. Sending girls to school is a direct attack on their view that a woman's duty is to serve a man. End quote. Okay, next chapter that I wanted to share is chapter six, um, and it's called When Girls Have No Voice, um, Child Marriage. And Sara, you'll remember probably in our class, this was my big project in international human rights, um, women's health and human rights. I talked and did a presentation on child marriage. So this is a tender topic for me just because I'd, I'd done some research on it before. Melinda Gates writes about a trip in 2013 where she went to Ethiopia to talk to child brides. She says, when we arrived at the village, two other women and I were invited into a courtyard that was a gathering place for the village. It, it had a tiny health clinic, a fire pit, and a small church where we would meet. There were very few people around. We brought no staff. The men with us were asked to stay back at the car. We wanted to have the best chance to hear from the girls, and so we left behind anything and anyone we thought might put them off. We entered the church, which was very dark inside, with only a few small windows letting in the light. There were about ten girls seated inside, and when my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I saw just how small they looked. They were tiny, like little fragile baby birds still growing up, who hadn't even started to sprout their wings, and they were being married off. I wanted to put my arms around them and hug them and protect them. They were ten or eleven years old, the age of my daughter Phoebe but they looked even younger. Half the girls were married, I was told, and half were still in school. So then she tells the story of how a lot of these girls had had a similar thing happen to them where their parents had asked them to help them get ready for a big party. And so the, the girl would help her parents, her mother really, cook and clean and fetch water all day to get ready for this big party. And then right as the guests were arriving, the girl would be told that actually the party was for their wedding and they were getting married right then to a man they had never met. And again, these girls are, you know, 10 or 11. So they would get married right then and then leave their childhood homes and go with this new man, much older than her, to a village 
that this girl had never seen and she would never go to school again and she would assume the duties of a of you know the household and servitude and and sex and having children for the rest of her life so she then goes on to tell she tells a story about child marriage in several different places and it, it happens all over the world including in latin america which is something i didn't know before we took that class but it happens all over um, and Melinda Gates goes on to tell the story of a solution to this problem where they developed helplines in India. So if a girl is being threatened with child marriage, if she finds out my parents are going to mar- marry me off today or tomorrow or whatever, she can call a number like a 911 number and police will come and break up the wedding and rescue her because it's against the law in a lot of these places. But the, they just practice it anyway. They just defy the law. And so, but the problem is, and and the author goes on to write, and she says, many girls don't have cell phones. They don't have access to this to uh, this intervention. They don't have support networks. They don't have a local police force that will come and stop the wedding. But also, and more important, when a young girl does get out of her marriage and goes back home, she goes back to the mother and father who wanted to marry her off. How's that going to work out? She has no power in that household. She thwarted her parents and perhaps shamed them. Do her parents take out their anger on her? And then the just a part that, that points out the patriarchal structure that men and women are both participating in. She says, when a family can receive money for marrying off a daughter, they have one fewer mouth to feed and more resources to help everyone else. When a family has to pay to marry off a daughter, the younger the girl, the less her family pays in dowry. In both cases, the incentives strongly favor early marriage. And every year a girl doesn't marry, there's a greater chance that she will be sexually assaulted and then considered unclean and unfit for marriage. So it's also with the girl's honor and the family's honor in mind that parents often marry their girls so young so they can avoid that trauma. And so, I mean, there's so many things to unpack there in terms of financial hardship and how that plays into this and sexual shame and how that plays into it and and the, the patriarchal norms of, you know, and protecting girls from sexual assault and all of these problems are just compounding that are creating this problem where, where parents, both parents, including the mothers, are marrying their daughters off at, at these young ages because there's no better option. And I, I just appreciate it again. It's so heartbreaking and so frustrating. And I appreciate that the author, that Melinda Gates points out the motivations behind why these parents are doing this and the complexities in the culture. And it's not an easy solution. It's a, it will require a lot of, you know, a multi-pronged approach and people on the ground doing work. And that's what her foundation is doing. So. No, I, I completely agree. And you're so right, Amy, that, as you point out, this is, there's no easy solution. It's, mm-hmm. it's so complex and there's so many different aspects to this, right? So there's the, the poverty, the social pressure. Um, oftentimes in a lot of these communities, girls unfortunately are seen as a burden. It's another mouth to feed. And if you, and you know, these aren't ill-intentioned people, they're not evil people. Right. And it's sort of like, if they can just marry the girl off and, and and sadly, unfortunately, and against the law, they marry them off younger and younger so that they have one less mouth to feed. And and maybe the hopes that, you know, she'll be taken care of. But as you said, she's often a, 
uh, a servant, a sex slave, a servant having babies in this other household. But it's, and this sort of ties into the, um, the my next quote that I wanted to share about, you know, for us from the outside and even for on people on the inside, not coming from a place of judgment to say like, okay, yes, what they are doing is wrong. Yes, it is, it is hurtful. It's harmful, but that may change the life of one or two people, but we've got to come from a place of empathy. So mm-hmm. that uh, reminds me of a part in, uh, it's in chapter six, where Melinda Gates shares a story of her mentor, Molly Melsing, um, who says that the ch- challenging long-standing cultural practices um, takes empathy. She talks about the empathy barrier. And she describes that based on Molly's experience, um, and the quotation is, outsiders show little skill in projecting themselves into the lives of the people they wanted to help and had little interest in trying to understand why something was being done in a certain way, end quote. And then she goes on to add that often people get outraged by certain practices in developing countries and want to rush in and say, this is harmful, stop it, and that's the wrong approach. Outrage can save one or two, she told me, only empathy can change the system, end quote. And I think she's absolutely right. You know, you could be outraged and sort of rush in and save those one or two girls, but what is needed is a change in tradition, a change in the cultural, traditional practices that are harmful to women. And I think the way that this can come about is, and we've talked about this uh, before, is for people from within the community to challenge those practices. Uh, whether in the case of the honor killings, I described this, the instance, incidents of Samia's killing, whether it's you know people from within the community to speak out against the practice of honor-related violence, uh, if it's communities where the girls are getting married at a young age, for them to speak out and say, no, this is wrong, you know, let her finish her education, let her finish school. And so I think that the change has to come from within. Hmm, absolutely. One more example that I wanted to share of this same thing is from chapter nine. And um, this is where Melinda Gates is very humble about her own response. So this is a part where Melinda Gates had gone to Laos and Burma and she was working f- or she was talking with a woman who was working locally for the foundation. And this woman asked her uh, right when she arrived, she she asked Melinda Gates, if you were a woman and you were born here, what would you do to keep your children alive? What lengths would you go to? And Melinda Gates says, I was startled by the question. So I stalled for a minute and tried to put myself in that scene. OK, well, I would get a job. Oh, but I'm not educated. I can't even read. But I would teach myself to read. But with what books? And I'm not going to get a job because there are no jobs. I'm in a remote region. I was trying to come up with an answer when she interrupted my thinking and said, do you know what I would do? I said, no, what would you do? She answered, well, I've lived here for two years now. I know the options. I would be a sex worker. It would be the only way I could put food on the table. It was a shocking thing to say. But after taking the whole trip in and reflecting for a while, it struck me that saying the opposite thing would have been even more shocking. If you say, oh, I would never do that, then you're saying you would let your kids die. And you're saying, I'm above these people. 
She had worked with sex workers on other health crises, so her question to me had an edge to it, implied but still powerful. How can you partner with them if you think you're above them? And I thought that was just, to your point, another illustration of that, of needing to approach these topics with empathy and having a real open mind and seeking to really understand what the options are for these women, what their lives really feel like. And then I I do want to share one last thing because it's an inspiring story of a successful intervention. So she talks about how sex workers in India were frequently harassed and beaten and raped by police, and they didn't know what to do. And so the women devised a system where they would call, you know, a 911, again, a helpline. And what would happen is that the other sex workers would come rushing to their aid. And so 12 to 15 of their friends would come running, accompanied by a pro bono lawyer and someone from the media, like with a microphone and a video camera to film what was happening. This immediately put a stop to the abuse and the practice spread all over India. And so I was really, really inspired by those stories of women coming together and actually not even implementing violence, but just using that, that you know, social shame to, to hopefully awaken that man's conscience and think like, wait, what am I doing? I'm, I'm harming someone. So anyway, I loved that. But that brings us to the end of the discussion, Sarah. This was so enlightening. Thank you so much for being a part of our conversation today. Thank you. Oh, Amy, thank you for including me. It was an absolute honor and a pleasure to do this podcast with you. 